You cannot mature as a Christian without a deepening life of prayer. We cannot mature as a church without a deepening life of prayer. It's the primary way that God transforms us into the people He made us to be. Prayer is. Prayer, it's, it's the tool that God uses to work His will into our bodies and into our souls. And it's the primary tool we use to collaborate with God in His work in this world. In other words, prayer is a primary way that we become truly human. Without a deepening life of prayer, you cannot become truly human. Prayer must be the serious work of your life as an individual and of our life as a church. Now, my prayer, I mean real prayer, serious prayer, not some little thing tacked onto the periphery of your life. The type of prayer I'm talking about does not come naturally. There are prayers that come naturally. I'm not talking about those. There's a different type of prayer that does not come naturally, and it is not easy. It does not come easily. It requires learning and discipline. This is why Jesus' disciples, who had prayed all their lives, don't underestimate their prayer life. They had been praying from the time they were... They were Jews in a very religious culture. But after experiencing the quality and the quantity of his praying, what do they say to him? Lord, teach us. People who've been praying our own lives, we know how to do this stuff. But Lord, now we know that we don't. Teach us how to pray. Teach. It's something that must be learned. Now, I don't mean by that that prayer is complicated. See, the problem with a lot of us is we know there is a whole ocean of prayer that we do not experience, and we're intimidated by that. I don't mean when I say prayer is not easy. I don't mean that it's complicated. I mean that it's a skill. And like all skills, we develop the ability to pray well Through practice. That's how you develop a skill. Right? You want to get good at using a bandsaw? Martine, it's showing horses. Lots of practice, right? You want to get good at playing the piano or shooting a gun? Right? Where's Scott? I put that in there for you. Right? It takes practice, doesn't it? Honey, I've got to go practice, right? You want to get good at working on a car? Right? Right? You've just got to do it, right? You've just got to... You can't sit in a room thinking about it, talking about it, wondering about it. You've just got to go for it. That's what a skill is. A skill is something that with practice you develop proficiency. So how do we do this? In a word, the Psalms. God's people have always gone to the Psalms to learn how to pray. The Psalms were the prayer book of Israel. They were the prayer book of Jesus. From the beginning, they've been the prayer book of the church. At no time in the history of God's people, with the likely exception of the last hundred years or so, at no time in the history of God's people have the Psalms not been at the very center of the prayer life of God's people. One of the primary reasons they've been sidelined is because of contemporary music. We've got another avenue of praising God available to us 
which we should leverage and use, but we should not throw out the primary avenue. And this has happened. If you want to learn how to pray, to really pray, you cannot bypass the Psalms. Now, I'm not saying that you can't learn to pray on your own, by yourself, figuring it out on your own, not going to the Psalms. Of course you can't. But learning to pray without the Psalms, you'll hack your way through formidable country by trial and error with inferior tools. You'll get there. There's just a lot better way to do it. There is no more powerful. There is no more means of grace way. There is no more anointed way to learn how to pray than to pray the Psalms. If you do not immerse yourself in the Psalms, you will miss the center where Christ worked out of. When, when this passage we heard, Dennis from Acts, when the early church was in life and death and they went to pray, what came out of them? Psalm 2. When you're in life and death, you need it so deep in you. If you bypass the Psalms, you are missing the center that Christ worked out of, that Christ prayed the Psalms and his people have always followed suit. Church of the Incarnation. We cannot mature as individual Christians. And we cannot mature as a church without growing in the life of prayer. So for the next couple of months, let's agree together to enroll in the school of prayer. Let's say to our Lord what his disciples said. Lord, teach us to pray. And, let's, and then let's turn to the book where Christ himself learned how to pray. And in the words of that great Catholic monk, I put this in the newsletter, let's take possession of the Psalms. Let's move into them, or better, move them into the house of our own souls. Turn if, with me, if you have your Bible, to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. It's interesting. The book in the Bible that teaches us how to pray doesn't begin with a prayer. Right? Blessed is the man who walks... That's, that's not a prayer, is it? The first prayer in Psalm doesn't come up till chapter 3, right? Psalm number 3. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Now, that's a prayer, right? If you read it in the message, it's something like, Holy cow, they're surrounding me, God. Now, that's a prayer. But the book of the Psalms doesn't begin in prayer. You know why? Because you're not ready to pray yet. I'm not ready to pray yet. We're too wrapped up in ourselves. We need to prepare. The first two psalms, they get us ready to pray. All week I've been thinking the psalms, they're like this beautiful two pillars, arched gateway leading into this incredible garden of the Psalter. That's what you call all the psalms put together, the Psalter. Psalm 1 is a pillar. Psalm 2 is a pillar. And before you ever even get into the world of prayers, you have to prepare. You have to pass through Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Let's start at the beginning. Blessed is the man who... Now stop right there. The very first word of the whole book of the Psalms, blessed. Go, in fact, now well, let me just say, this word, it means happy. Ha- some of your Bibles might translate, happy is the man who. It also means approved by God. The man is approved by God who... 
Drop down to the last verse of Psalm 2. The last phrase of the last verse of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who. I'll stop right there. Psalm 1, 1, first verse. Psalm 2, 12, last verse. They both have the same phrase and it works like a clamp. Holding these two psalms together. Sealing them together. Enveloping them. Psalm 1 begins, Psalm 2 ends with this idea of blessedness. Look, before you can learn to pray, you must start here. God is calling us to live the kind of life that He approves and that leads to true happiness. You see, before you can do something well, you must become something. The Psalms begin with who you are before they get to how you pray. And in our technological society, we've forgotten that that matters. We think, just show me the method, and it doesn't matter who I am, I can do it. That's what method and technology tells us. It's wrong. Psalm says, you, re- you need to become someone who can pray well. And so let's start with the type of person you are. Now, it's important to know that the people who wrote and edited this book, they were no Pollyannas. So the book starts, happy is the person who. They were not snake oil salesmen. This is not a silver bullet. The Psalms are not offering some simple product or experience that's going to give you your best life. That's not what this is saying. In fact, in the weeks ahead, as we pass through the gateway and we wander among the the geography of the Psalms, you know what we're going to discover? They go through the full range of human experience. Psalms of lament. Psalms that are desperate cries for help. Psalms of depression and abandonment. Psalms of doubt and unbelief and faith. And psalms of praise and joy. The whole gamut awaits us. And by putting these two psalms at the beginning of the Psalter, you've got to understand that it's not disconnected from all of the pain and suffering. In between the blessed and happy life of Psalm 1 and the cannonade of hallelujahs in Psalm 146 to 150 is a whole life to be lived. And the the psalmists are not Pollyannas. They know that. And yet still there is a steadfast conviction that there is a way of living that is approved by God that yields a genuine happiness. Go back to the beginning of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You should memorize that. Because it tells you to memorize that. It tells you you're blessed if you memorize this instruction. Teenagers, you should have that memorized like the back of your hand. Because it is life and death as you navigate through school. Adults, it is the same for you. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law. Now, if you underline in your Bible, you need to underline that word. It is the most important word in the whole Psalm, of, Psalm 1, law. That's the way my Bible translates. Most, most translations translate it that way. It's an okay translation. The original word here in Hebrew is Torah. It definitely means law, but it's so much more than that. 
It's more than commandments. It means the instruction of God. In fact, the Jews call the first five books of the Old Testament the Torah, the law. But think about how much of Genesis is stories, right? So God instructs us not just through commandments. He also instructs us through stories and through poems and through songs and through laments and through all of that. You need to meditate on this Torah. It's the instruction that God has given Israel in all of its genres. Now, we call these instructions Scripture or the Bible with its stories and poems and commands. Blessed is a man whose delight is in the Torah, the law of God. If, this is such a problematic translation for us because we think of law in negative ways. But clearly, they're not thinking of it, right? His delight is in the instruction of God. In contrast to a scoffer, we don't have time to go into all of this now, but a scoffer is someone who arrogantly refuses God's instructions. The blessed person is a person who delights in what God has to say about how to live your life. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to live a life that God approves of? Do you want to be genuinely happy? Well, the question is, are you deeply and perpetually open to God's instructions? That's what this is. It's about yielding your pride and opening your heart to God's instructions to us contained in Scripture. Do you delight in God's law? Do you meditate on God's instructions because you know their life? Do you really delight in this? Look at verse 3. If you do this, if you humble yourself, if the fundamental orientation of your life is to open your life up to God's instructions and daily meditating on them, notice what you will become. A tree transplanted out of the desert that you're living in. To a place beside streams, yielding its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. This was exactly what God was saying to Joshua in, in Gillian's wonderful reading, right? Joshua, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. Then you will be prosperous in all you do. This is the same thing we're told, in, we're told in the five books of Moses to meditate on Torah. And we're told in the five books of David to give our hearts to this. And if we do this, we will prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What a striking comparison. The life and future of the one who constantly delights in God's instruction will like, be like this tree transplanted beside a source of water. You will never be without the resource you need for life. Your taproot will be into it. Stability, durability, freshness. A rich fruitfulness. But then there's the one who either despises God's instruction or just ignores it. By taking his religion on Sundays. Or whatever way. I mean, we've got all kinds of canny ways for not deeply immersing our lives in Scripture. This one, what are you like? Unstable waste of chaff. 
In fact, there's three lines devoted to the tree, right? Just one little line. There's nothing really to say about this person. They're so insubstantial. The wind drives it away to nothingness. That's all there is to chaff. But the righteous person is a rich, living, thriving, transplanted tree, firm, rooted, productive. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Psalms begin by saying there are two paths, two ways. This is the, before you ever move into Psalms, you've got to pick which path are you going to go down because one will lead you into life. One will make you into the kind of person for whom the Psalms become life. The other will close the Psalms to you. They will be dust and ash in your mouth. Which way will you choose? Each of us has a choice. Every one of us has a choice. All the verbs in 1, 2, and 3 are singular. Blessed is the man. A lot of our modern translations, because they're making gender neutral kind of stuff, blessed is the person. You lose this idea. Blessed is the man, is the man, is the man. But when it gets to the wicked, it's plural. Look, broad is the way. Right? That's, that's just the Old Testament way of saying there are lots of paths out there that can take you the wrong way. But there is only one path. It's also a way of saying, get this. When you convert, you find yourself in the midst of the church. But you must convert as an individual. You must choose this path on as an individual. This is a choice that Delaney has to make. It's a choice that Paula has to make, that Spencer, every one of us has to decide this issue. Which path? And people who refuse God's instruction, they may seem to flourish. Right away when we get to Psalm 3, they're doing better than the righteous. They may seem to flourish. They may seem to have all they need. They may be full of self-confidence and apparent stability and pride. They may prosper, but the creator of this world is also its ruler. He is the redeemer. And he's not only a God of beauty, he's a God of truth and justice. A God who abhors evil and oppression, who hates wickedness. And ignoring this fact is the fundamental mistake of the wicked. In short term, the Torah ignorers may seem to flourish and the righteous suffer. But in the long term, their roles will be reversed permanently. It is the Torah lovers who will flourish like a tree planted by streams of water. You have a choice to make. The question is not what one choice did you make when you were eight. The question is right now in your life, what choice are you making? Now that's half of the arched gateway into the Garden of the Psalms. To pray the Psalms, we must be open to God's instructions. That's one pillar. Let's gaze upon the other pillar. Look with me at Psalm 2. Here the ground is shifted. In the second Psalm, we don't hear about the individual who follows God's righteous ways. Instead, we hear about nations and kings and rulers and empires. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed one. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now look, to understand this psalm, it's helpful to understand it against the backdrop 
of a government that's in a time of transition. This was one of the royal psalms. It was one of the psalms that we're fairly confident was used at the coronation of kings of Israel. And when nations are going through times of governmental transition, they're unstable. Other nations see opportunities, right? To rise up, to resist, or to conquer. It's like that today. Nations in transition are vulnerable. Look at verse 4. He who sits in heavens laughs. Look, do you want to become the kind of person that when all hell is breaking loose, you hear the laughter of God? Don't you want to become the kind of person who stops freaking out when your life is stressed? The kind of person who doesn't freak out is the person who knows that God is not intimidated and He has not lost control. That's the gateway. That's that's the kind of person God is called. The Lord in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now this is an, an astonishing claim. When you think about when it was written and when it was preserved. Think about this. The first psalm is saying that the Bible... And your devotion to it. And your openness to it. Your openness to receiving what scripture says. That that has a fundamental role in your life. And the second psalm is presupposing that the tiny kingdom of Israel. That its God and its king have ultimate power over all the nations of the earth. Now to be honest, we expect this kind of stuff to come out of Babylon or Assyria at the time this was written, but not out of one of their vassal states. Not out of this puny country who can never get its act together and threatens no one because it's so weak. But here's little old Israel, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, saying, our God is the one true God. And he has a special relationship with our king. And through that king, the one and only true God rules everybody, rules all the nations, rules all the places, rules all the peoples. Above all the powerful rulers and all the turmoil of this world and its history, God and his anointed one rule and reign. That's the claim of Psalm 2. I mean, just look at verse 7. Here's Israel's new king. He's speaking about something God said to him on his coronation day. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's an astonishing claim to make when you're not all that. I mean, do you realize what this psalm is doing? It is posing and answering a fundamental question. Who rules the world? And the answer of Psalm 2 is clear. The Lord of Israel reigns. He's the king. When it appeared otherwise, as it always did for Israel, Psalm 2 says that the God of Israel is in control even when all the events of history, and listen, even when all the events of your life Or saying something else. 
Now look at verse 10. Now we're back to the narrator talking. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. Can you see this little bitty nation that's had its tail kicked all over, shaking its finger at Assyria? Be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun. And there it's actually not a Hebrew word. Using a word from one of these other countries for sun just as a way of putting it in their face. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we're looking at the second pillar of this gateway into the Psalms. In Psalm 1, we saw that the blessed person is the person who constantly delights and constantly returns and opens themselves to and meditates on God's instruction. But here in Psalm 2, we see that the blessed person is the person who takes refuge in God by depending on His Son. It's that last phrase. Blessed are all who take refuge. You should underline that word refuge. It's one of the most important words throughout the whole first book of the Psalter. It comes up time and time again. Taking refuge in God. In the Psalms, it means you live in complete dependence upon God rather than upon yourself. It means you entrust your whole self, your whole existence, and your future to God. Now, we need to notice something here. In these two Psalms, the wicked are not outrageously bad. They're not raping and pillaging. In Psalm 2, you're a wicked person if either by ignorance or derision you you don't meditate on Scripture day and night. The the defining characteristic of the righteous is that they are immersing themselves in Scripture, opening their heart to God's instruction. And And not doing that is to fall in the other camp. That's not an outrageously bad person. In fact, it could be many of us. In Psalm 2, you're a wicked person if your basic orientation in life is to fundamentally depend upon yourself instead of upon God. So here at the gateway to the prayer book of the Bible, we're not allowed to deal with prayer until we first deal with ourselves. Are you self-centered or God-centered? Are you self-reliant or dependent upon God? If you are consumed with worry and anxiety, make no mistake about it, you are self-reliant. Worry and anxiety is the manifestation of not trusting in God. I'm not trying to beat you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm just trying to say this is where Scripture in God's grace wants you to start. Are you self-instructed? Or are you open to God's instruction, constantly meditating on it? Maybe you don't worry about anything. Maybe you don't struggle with anxiety. And maybe you also don't meditate on Scripture because you don't really need it. You know how to work your way through life. We can sum it up. The wicked consider themselves to be autonomous, which literally means a law unto yourself. 
So they are self-centered, self-directed, self-ruled. The wicked see no need, no compulsion. They're not compelled to depend upon God. They are not driven to God's Word and to God's Son. Both Psalms are presenting a contrast, a choice. This is a serious issue that demands serious soul-searching. And before we as a church enter into the world of the Psalms, this is where we've got to sit. We need to let God hold the mirror of His Word up to our lives and expose the darknesses in our heart. Expose the idolatries and the self-sufficiencies. We need to become the kind of people who trust in the Lord, take refuge in the Lord in times of crisis. The first verse we teach our children to memorize, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Psalm 56.3. Trusting in God means you trust in Him at night, kids, when you're afraid. And adults, when you can't pay the bills and you're afraid. But trusting in the Lord is not just about the times of crisis. It's also about when life is good. Psalm 62, 8, trust in the Lord at all times. The righteous take refuge in God. They trust in God. They love His instructions. One, one other thing here. We know that Israel never experienced her kings with the level of authority and power that God promises them in this passage. It always remained an ideal rather than a reality. They're not buffing up their history. They're pretty clear about their history. Why? Because they knew there was coming a day when there would be a king for whom this would be true. Mark chapter 1. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened. And God himself quoted Psalm 2 to Jesus. At his transfiguration, the heavens are open, and God himself quotes Psalm 2 to Jesus. At his resurrection, both Acts and Romans quote Psalm 2 in reference to Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ is the king of the universe. He is the king to whom Psalm 2 was ultimately directing our gaze. He is the king of all peoples, all societies, and all nations. And he does not bring people into his kingdom by force. We receive the blessing of his reign by turning in faith to him. And get this. There's no other king coming. It will not be said again. We've had the last coronation. There is no other offer of salvation from God. Jesus is the one and only offer of salvation from God. There is no other divine plan. There is no other strategy of heaven to meet our needs and to save us from the consequences of all the foolishness and wickedness of this world. There is only Jesus. The King has arrived. Jesus Christ To serve the one and true creator of the universe, we must submit to his son. Be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss his son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him.
to really deepen in the life of prayer, we must learn to deeply trust in the Messiah. Daily trust in Him. I'm not talking about a one-time action that gets you saved or something. I'm saying you must become a person who is marked by a, a fundamental orientation of life that trusts in Christ. We must take refuge To enter into the school of prayer, we must give ourselves to God despite all of the oppositions that are mentioned in both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. So here we have it. The age-old entrance to the life of prayer for the church. So much more. These are the parts that I thought we needed to sit with. In Psalm 1, we're called to humbly open our lives to God's instruction by daily meditating on Scripture. Parents, if your children don't know how to read, they can memorize. Find a really short verse. Those of you who know how to read, you've got more opportunities at your disposal. In Psalm 2, we're called to humbly yield our lives to to the reign of God's Messiah by actually entrusting our lives And our future to Him. Now think about this. Psalm 1. Attention to God's instruction through delightful meditation. Psalm 2. Trust in God's Son through daily dependence. These are the two pillars holding up the gateway into a life of prayer. Now, because all of us are dirty, rotten scoundrels... And our flesh and our heart and our mind will keep us from living out Scripture. Let me ask you to do something practical and specific this week. Don't let your soul off the hook. All of us, our hearts, you know, we like to applaud pretty sermons and then move on. That's our flesh. It deceives us. So let me call you to something. Like I said at the beginning, we cannot mature as a church or as individual Christians without deepening life of prayer. And as I said at the beginning, this type of prayer doesn't come natural. It will not just happen because you liked what was just said. It will not come natural and it will not come easily. It requires discipline and practice. So one of the great Christian saints of our memory is a guy named Henri Nouwen. And he and along with many others have attested over and over and over that when it comes to this type of prayer, it is critical that you set a definite time, a definite place, and you have a specific focus. So when I was learning how to have a quiet time as a child, this is what I was taught. In my senior year of high school, when I was trying desperately to make it through high school, loving the Lord, this is what I was taught. You need, so I'm going to ask you for the next seven days, this is for the adults and the adolescents and the older children, for the next week, before we meet together and enter into the Psalms, set aside a specific daily time for 10 or 15 minutes. You don't have to kill the fatty calf here. Just 10 or 15 minutes. Pick a place. It's great if it's a room. It's great if you got to, you know, Jesus said, when you go to pray, go into a place of prayer. It could be a, a closet. It could be a, um, a corner of a room with a chair. Pick a time, a place, 10 or 15 minutes. Now, the time, it could be morning. 
could be the middle of the day, your lunch break. It could be at night when finally the house is quiet. Find a time that you can be quiet and uninterrupted. 10 or 15 minutes where you can give God your full attention. And a place. When Jesus went to pray, he often went to a place. He went to a mountain, right? Or he went to a garden. Or he went into the desert. What I'm saying is place matters for prayer. Outside or inside, wherever you're most comfortable, find a quiet and peaceful spot to do this. It might be your closet or the corner of your room. Find a place. Now, once the time arrives and you're in your place, you might want to light a candle or have an icon or something. Take a deep breath. Believe, this is so important, believe that you are in God's presence. Remind yourself. That's one reason that saints, that a lot of people light a candle when they read the Bible. It's a way of saying, Christ is the light of the world. I'm in his presence. Just a way of physically reminding yourself. This is one of the traditions of the church. Christ is, it's not that we have some sort of magical view. It's good to light a candle or to have an icon or something that you can just take a deep breath and remember. It's called the prayer of recollection. You recall that you're in God's presence. And then... Read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Let's sit with this. I didn't give the meaning of Psalm 1 and 2. I just pulled out of it a few things for us, but there's so much more there. When I was in high school, Psalm 1 verse 1 was what taught me what kind of friends to have. There have been moments of fear in my life when it's been the laughter of heaven that has given me peace. I mean, read Psalm 1 and 2. And wherever... You feel like a highlighter just wiped over the page, right? And something stands out at you, an image, a phrase, a word. Stop and allow your heart to lift from the branch in prayer to God. Just respond. Pray. Whatever comes to your mind, whatever is on your, whatever your heart desires, speak in any way that makes sense in the moment. Look, this, you don't have to come up with pretty words here and learn to listen. Let Jesus be the single focus. Now let's do this for seven days. Let's move into the Psalms. And let's let them move into the, to our own souls. And let's prepare for the journey as a church. I believe a feast awaits. Back in, the, in January, February, I preached four sermons on finances really Felt like God had been calling me to do it for months and months and months. About a year. Not quite a year. Out of that, God has blessed our church so much financially since then. I'm not saying that it was my preaching. I'm saying that God did something. And that has been my prayer for this. That we get to the other side of this season. And there is a real sense that every bit as much in our offerings show things changed financially with us. That things change among us with prayer. That we cast off into the deeps where a feast awaits. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes?